Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level Low power frequency radio modulation The big sound from underground another pirate station No, no change, change without, without struggle. struggle No one no in power, power ain't giving up nothing No change without struggle No one in power W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinur in a, an absolutely freezing studio. I forgot to bring my hat and my scarf and <laughs> so on and so forth. Anyway, our guest today is Oswaldo Zavala. He's professor of Latin American literature and culture at the College of Staten Island, Department of World Languages and Literatures, and the Graduate Center, PhD program in Latin American, Iberian, and Latino cultures at the City University of New York, CUNY. And we are here to talk today about his book titled Cartels Do Not Exist, Drug Trafficking and Culture in Mexico. Hello, Oswaldo. Good to have you. Thank you for joining us today. Hello. Thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. So, come on, cartels do not exist. What, what, what do you mean by that? Of course they exist, right? No? No, they don't. Um, and this is um, not just a provocation. It's, it's, uh, it's the, the thesis that I, that I defend and, and that I think um, can be explained by uh, paying attention to the question of language. So my central argument is that the concept of cartel does not um, explain at all the phenomenon of drug trafficking in Mexico, but in fact it imposes a certain understanding that is politically motivated. Uh, and in particular, um, it's the way of legitimizing the, what we call the, the war on drugs in Mexico, which is not, nothing but a, a very violent militarist program that has uh, caused a lot of destruction and, 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 and mayhem in, in, in my country, but that, um, uh, that could have been avoided by simply um, renouncing or taking a distance from um, the violent uh, U.S. security policy uh, that pushed us in the first place there. So the question of cartel, um, as, I, as I explained it in the book, um, uh, it's, it must be understood first as a question of language. Uh, the, the concept was coined in the late 1970s by the DEA um, not to uh, correctly tell the public what these drug organizations were doing in countries like Mexico or Colombia, but to magnify their presence and activity uh, and to justify then uh, the ensuing violent policy that I was just describing. Uh, but if you look at, you know, empirical evidence uh, from journalism or academia, nothing of the sort exists, right? The idea of a cartel being, of course, this very pyramidal, very powerful structure that, um, um, that can reach out to uh, over 100 countries in the world, depending on the expert that you're consulting, uh, and that generates billions of dollars in a massive empire, that simply is a fiction. That does not sustain, and we have plenty of evidence uh, to prove the contrary. Okay, so let's get into the linguistic part, as, as you suggest. Sure. Um, what does cartel mean, and why is drug trafficking and drug the drug industry as a whole, basically, in Mexico, why does it not fit the um, the meaning of the word and what is it that we have in Mexico if it's not curtails? Right. Um, well, as, as with any other clandestine economy, the drug trade, of course, depends on, on certain levels of violence and, and they do depend on uh, ways to move a uh, product that, of course, defies legality and, and institutionality between uh, the two countries involved, in this case, Mexico and the U.S. But the history of the drug trade um, has very little to do 
with the under the common understanding that we now have about uh, drug organizations. And this is something that I also would like to pose as one of the main arguments in my book, that we need to separate the history of the drug trade as a phenomenon and our current understanding of the war on drugs as a policy, right? One does not explain the other. And, and the reason they don't is because, you know, uh, as you look at the, his, the long history of the drug trade in Mexico um, throughout decades, the drug trade never uh, uh, ever meant or implied any sort of national security danger for the country or for such a, or social um, uh, society at large, right? Uh, and instead, uh, what we see is um, it's an it's an activity that, of course, um, is is of uh, concern that that should be um, tackled by different uh, perspectives in governance, right? We we should think of it as a um, uh, uh, health issue, and of course, as of course, as uh, some sort of police um, um, also uh, matter, right? But never as a national security idea. That is a very uh, a more recent approach that started in the late 1980s uh, with the designation of drug trafficking as a national security threat during the, the Ronald Reagan presidency. Um, and this is the time when the, the, the word cartel was coined uh, in the U.S. To manipulate a public understanding, to aggrandize the gravity of these organizations, and then to legitimize and to push for a demilitarization of the country that then happened in the, in the following decades, especially in the 1990s and then across the 2000s. Um, if you if you talk to uh, economists uh, or people who uh, or, uh, use the word cartel as uh, in the field of economic economy where where it originally comes from. You would find uh, they they will tell you that the way we use it to refer to drug organizations has very little to do uh, with the reality, right? Uh, um, a cartel, in in from the economic perspective, is uh, the combination of um, uh, organizations that uh, work together to manipulate the price of a certain product, right? And not, uh, of course, the understanding that we have of a drug trade right now, right? Which is uh, several organizations fighting each other for control of turf, for control of territory, uh, and not to manipulate the price of anything, but rather to extinguish each other, right? And so um, and the idea of cartel is not only misleading, but it's incorrect, it does not explain at all the phenomenon. And, and it, what it does in reality is just legitimize the very violent uh, approach that the U.S. and Mexico have taken, especially from the late 1980s and on, that has flooded my country with uh, soldiers, with police agents, and that has drastically elevated the homicide rate uh, all across the nation. So <laughs> there's so much in there. Um, let's talk about the drug industry in Mexico before um, the United States um, decided to elevate it as a national security, and, and we'll get to that absolutely, which is very important. I mean, this is what it's all about, I think. But um, let, how, how was it before Reagan or, or before really um, Nixon? You mentioned that um, it was during the during Nixon time that um, that the language started changing. Though you're also talking right. about how things changed in 1947. Let's talk about before. Um, before the U.S. decided to make it bigger than it is, and right. made it so, bigger. Right. In the, I guess in the long history of the drug trading in, in Mexico, what you have, according to um, several specialists in the topic, right, I'm thinking here, for example, sociologist Luis Astorga um, and um, other academics and journalists who, who have studied the period, uh, is that you will find um, organizations that um, were pretty small, and pretty insignificant uh, as a police concern. And, and as they grew a little bit um, over uh, the, the, the decades of the 1920s and 30s, they started uh, having links uh, of corruption with police corporations locally in different states, for example, the state of Sinaloa, the state of Chihuahua in the north of Mexico, the state of Tamaulipas, of course. And what you will have then, uh, for example, this is something that, that I believe um, um, is it, perhaps the most 
um, precise account by his by British historian uh, Benjamin Smith, what you would have in those decades is uh, it's just simply police rackets, right? Police corporations um, uh, co-opting uh, and, and manipulating uh, different organizations to, to produce um, extra income and, of course, to regulate the clandestine industries. And um, and I think that dynamic um, continued across decades up until the 1970s, when uh, the U.S. and Mexico, for the first time, engaged in a binational militarized effort to eradicate marijuana and poppy. And this is the era of what we call, uh, that is now known, uh, Operation Condor. Not to be confused with Operation Condor in South America, which had to do with regime change, um, with uh, bringing military uh, dictatorships over countries like Chile and Argentina. What we had in Mexico during our Operation Condor is um, something more similar to what it was described then as a war, right? A war against um, uh, producers of marijuana and, and heroin. Um, but in reality, this binational militarized effort, what it led to was to the massive displacement of thousands of people from um, the mountains of Chihuahua, Durango, and Sinaloa in particular, what is what the U.S. labeled as the Golden Triangle, right? Um, of course, emulating um, the Southeast Asian uh, uh, triangle of, of drugs, right? And, and, and as they did that, as they punished the poorest sectors of Mexico in the 1970s, those who uh, worked with the political and police and military elites uh, within the drug trade organizations, managed to ascend in their business. And they ended up actually, in fact, relocating most of the main drug operations to the city of Guadalajara, what is what then later became known as the Guadalajara cartel in the 1980s. Now, what is very interesting is up until this time, even what you have is traffickers co constantly subalternized and manipulated and instrumentalized by police and government institutions, not subverting their power, not corrupting their power, but actually being almost, if you will, employed by uh, by official institutions. So meaning back in those days, nobody would ever even think of them as some sort of a threat, right? They would pose no threat to um, uh, governments, to, uh, to civil society, or to society in general at large. Um, and that changed radically at the end of the 1980s because precisely the U.S. transformed its national security uh, paradigm um, and, and replaced the, tra uh, the, the, the common um, enemy of the U.S., which back in those days, of course, was um, the communist, uh, with the trafficker, right? So the trafficker makes its big entrance in the national security discourse uh, at the late 1980s and suddenly becomes the center object of this violent um, uh, transnational policy. And so what is then very interesting is that it, it still took a few years for the Mexican political elites to accept this change and to start talking about the drug trade as the, the new national security threat. And so there's always, uh, and this is something that I, that I show in my work, there's always um, um, uh, delay uh, within, you know, policy, discourse, and our perception of reality, right? So, so um, policy and language begin talking about this reality way before people even realize it's out there. And this is something that happened even to the traffickers themselves in the 1980s. Once they found all of them themselves in prison, in different interviews, they told the public that they first heard, for example, the word of uh, the word cartel when they were already in prison. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they, and that's when they realized that they actually had formed a cartel. Once, once when they were already, of course, um, um, uh, detained and neutralized by those uh, polit uh, political institutions using the word cartel. So what is then very interesting is that um, um, this new reality that, that was imposed in the late 1980s continued growing, of course, and by the mid 1990s. Um, the public started to getting used to uh, the word of the idea of cartel, and 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 by the mid 1990s, uh, I, I, somewhere around 1995, um, we started talking about the Juarez cartel as a new national security threat that the U.S. and Mexico Mexico had to fight together, and 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 a new era of violence um, attributed to the drug traffickers began. 
right? And and this is where we find ourselves now, right? We we find ourselves thinking that these organizations are very powerful, they are very violent, and yet a couple decades um, before uh, this idea took hold, um, uh, we uh, in reality had um, these traffickers pretty much um, within the system, uh, working for the political system. Not to say that that was a good thing or anything, of course not, but but um, but the idea that these organizations are violent and out of control and that can only be stopped with the massive military deployment is a fiction. And, th and that fiction has been utilized by both the U.S. and the Mexican institutions to advance the interest of war, the interest of transnational um geopolitical uh, po uh, 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 political and economic classes that that use the idea of a drug war for many purposes um, and but, but I'll stop there so that uh, so well we and we'll go. get we'll get to the purposes though there is so much to um, talk about I, I do want to take two quick detours though you were talking about how um, words are used and they're used and they're used and eventually the words change reality or at least reality as we understand it, if not reality as it actually is. And that makes me think of Trump and, uh, oh, you know, the right wing in the United States and the way they're using words and the way they keep using them and the way they are already changing our reality here in the United States. You know, if you look at all the states where... Uh, people cannot have abortions anymore, where uh, people who um, whose sexuality is different are basically in endangered, where you see how things have already gone so much to the right. Um, just, I, I would like to get your comment on that, since you are actually, you're not a professor of history, you're a professor of literature and culture. So um, if, if you can um, offer us a comment on that sure well i mean uh, i think it's very important to pay attention to language not only because um it's uh the one of the foundational weapons to change people's minds and to create uh and to manufacture consent but uh because in many ways this um uh, linguistic reality that was invented in the late 1980s ended up transforming the materiality of government and pushing to new uh forms to administer violence and to, uh, and to bring uh, a new era of militarization that ended up, of course, damaging social tissue all over the country and Mexico. And, and I think it's happening also here in the US. But I, I would say, however, that the use of language weaponized in this way is not just proper of the far right. In fact, the history of the drug trade as, as a discourse um, has been uh, produced in many ways at, simultaneously by the right and by the progressive wings of the U.S. government. Uh, in the late 1980s, one of the most um, um, adherent pushers of, uh, of this violent idea of, of the drug war was, of course, uh, then-Senator Joe Biden, who, um, who pushed for uh, mandatory guidelines in, uh, for prison sentences, uh, who pushed for uh, a very violent, aggressive uh, understanding of the drug war abroad, um, in fact, criticized then-President uh, George Bush for not having done enough you know, when in the new era of uh, of the violent anti-drug militarization in the Indian region, for example, in the in the in the region of Colombia and Bolivia and Peru, and to this day, President Biden claims as a victory the use of glyphosate. You know, this very toxic uh, herbicide chemical um, that was that was used in Colombia to uh, eradicate um, uh, drugs or drug crops. And so, what is extraordinary then is that um um. Uh, both the, the the progressive and the conservative wings of, of U.S. government throughout this history of the drug war have uh, united in in this common front, um, yeah. and you have and you have the same uh, thing happening throughout the 1990s, of course, with the Clinton administration, when uh, the most progressive uh, back then uh, 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 Attorney General Janet Reno. Uh, what pushed Mexico into uh, fighting the Juarez cartel in the mid 1990s? I was a reporter by then and, and actually had a, a chance to uh, to que ask questions in uh, when when this was announced as policy uh, in El Paso, Texas, in the 1990s. Um, and then, of course, throughout the Obama administration, right? The Obama administration um, not only backed and, and openly, publicly supported uh, President Felipe Calderón, one of the most violent right wing. 
um, uh, presence in Mexican history, but actually gave his full support economically in what is what is called uh, uh, what was then called as Mer the Merida Initiative, which was an aid package of about 3.6 billion dollars that was offered to help Mexico fight the drug war um, with uh, training and, and equipment for Mexican soldiers, right? So, so it's very important then to understand that this uh, violent idea of the drug war has been supported by both wings of the political spectrum in the U.S. Well, and, and Alad Kamala Harris, the first black and Asian uh, vice Absolutely. president who as attorney general in, in uh, California incarcerated more people than anyone else, I think, for, for petty drug um, offenses. So, um, yeah, so let me take quickly the other detour, um, which has to do with Operation Condor. And uh -huh. I want to, um, oops, I forgot to uh, turn off my phone, sorry. Um, and it's too far to reach. <laughs> um, so, so as you mentioned, and, and I don't want to get into detail, into too much detail, because there's so much else to talk about. And we, we, we have talked about Operation Condor in this show, though not for quite a while. But um, it was basically about um, eliminating leftist um, dissent in, uh, throughout Latin America. It was done with the support and, and maybe uh, actually initiated here in the United States. And you say that it was different in Mexico and explained how. But also uh, you say in your book that the war on drugs actually started in the 1970s during the Nixon administration as a domestic strategy to combat leftist dissent and exert social control of racialized minorities. So it's just interesting to me that there is that line that goes through all the different Operation Condors or, you know, the war on drugs that is also about um, fighting the left, basically fighting... Uh, people who are look who are um, fight who are themselves fighting for human rights, for better lives for everybody, for more equality. So, if you want to comment on that, also briefly, because I want to get back to other <laughs> things that are in your book. Of course, um, yes. I think the main difference uh, when we talk about Operation Condor in Mexico is that it was used uh, mainly to target uh, traffickers. Uh, and that that was um, that that were operating in the north of Mexico in particular, but as you say, uh, the policy was also used covertly to attack um, uh, leftist movements, student movements, um, uh, teachers uh, or, uh, movements uh, that that are organized uh, in, in in rural areas in the state of Sinaloa and the state of Chihuahua, and and it was covertly done. Um, because, of course, it was in, in uh, without the approval of, of the Mexican um, uh, Mexican society, but in line, uh, however, with uh, U.S. Uh, transnational interests. And what is very interesting is that uh, both Operation Condors, the Mexican one and the South American one, of course, both emanate from uh, the same um, Nixon administration and with Henry Kissinger as the mediator uh, for both. Right. Uh, then State Secretary uh, Henry Kissinger, of course, actively uh, pursued uh, Operation Condor in countries like Chile, but also uh, personally designated um, uh, key uh, government officials to push Mexico into the militarization of the drug trade. Um, and, and this is uh, something that has been documented, that I documented also in my, in my latest book. And, and that, as you can see, then um, uh, the U.S. has had a, a very profound uh, impact in the lives of millions of people across Latin America. And in, and in doing so, it can uh, export different ideas of what is the, the new, the current national security threat, right? So for Mexico, happened to be the drug war because Mexico was a friendly country to the U.S. We did not need regime change, right? We did not need a, a, a coup d'etat because our, our presence have been historically uh, in line with U.S. interests. I mean, back in the 1950s, as we have uh, demonstrated now, you know, even Mexican presidents were CIA informants, right? <laughs> directly um, participating and collaborating uh, with CIA uh, interests uh, in, in, in the country. So, um, so th we need to look at the history of, of both um, Operation Condor in Mexico and, and Latin America, 
to to understand uh, the impact of this discourse and and of the general aggressive policy of the U.S. in the region. Yeah. Well, my guest is Oswaldo Zavala. He's professor of Latin American literature and culture at the College of Staten Island, Department of World Languages and Literature, and the Graduate Center a PhD program in Latin American, Iberian, and Latino cultures at the City University of New York, uh, CUNY. Um, if you have uh, relevant questions or comments, you're welcome to join the conversation at 608-256-2001, extension 9, or you can join us on social media at Word Talk on Twitter or a public affair on Facebook. And... Um, I, I forgot, uh, Oswaldo, I meant to dedicate the show to the memory of Gary Webb, who was a guest on this show three oh. or four times uh, oh, wow. as he was writing his series and Absolutely. then the book. Uh, he also came here to Madison and we actually spent um, some time together um, and it was very... I, I still, when I think about him, I, I feel terrible about the way he died and... Um, so let's let's get um a bit into his work and also you are um telling i think s- new stuff about the murder of DA agent in Enrique Kiki Camarena uh who of course Gary wrote about um so remind us what he came up with and and uh what happened to him and and let's talk about uh Kiki Camarena. Do, do, do you want me to talk to uh to talk about Gary Webb first? Yes. Okay. Well, I mean Gary Webb was of course um and and still is a, a central figure in in Jewish journalism and and in our uh combative uh, understanding of what this uh, so-called drug war has done to this country and and abroad especially in Latin America. He was a pioneer in um in in bringing investigative journalism to its finest. Uh, when he um, investigated um, the links between the CIA um, and drug um, uh, sales in, uh, in in Los Angeles, uh, in the 1990s he broke um, a series of uh, uh, investigative reports um, where he detailed how, with the knowledge of the CIA, um, uh, drug uh, traffickers who were aiming at financing uh, Contra uh, uh, operations in Nicaragua were using drug sales uh, to bring uh, money and weapons uh, into Central America. And, and this, of course, caused major controversy in the U.S. Uh, and, and, and major newspapers, instead of trying to follow up this, with the story, uh, decided to attack him and to um, into and, and basically do uh, some some uh, uh, very effective uh, strategy of, char- of character assassination and questioning his sources, questioning the story altogether. And and ultimately, this led to uh, Gary Webb's um, um, uh, dismissal from, from the uh, San Diego Union Tribune, where he worked. And his career came to, to a tragic ending when, when he took his own life. Uh, and but but uh, now and, and know, the major newspapers of the United States um, really collaborated with the government um, to denounce him and, and his work. To denounce him in a very callous and, and unfounded way, of course. And and this this uh, papers like the New York Times, uh, the Washington Post. To this day, uh, uh, still uh, try to poke holes on, on, on Gary Webb's story. But we know now uh, from government data that he was, of course, right. And that uh, there were plenty, there was plenty of evidence demonstrating that uh, the U.S. not only knew and, and allowed uh, for uh, drug activity in places like Los Angeles, but in fact, you know, payments were issued out of the uh, State Department to known traffickers, traffickers who had been already indicted in U.S. courts, uh, who received uh, direct payments uh, from uh, the U.S. government for other activities. And so what is extraordinary is not that, that uh, how, how right uh, Gary Webb was, but how right he still is uh, when, it, when we think of the drug war and how uh, it operates still uh, in places like Mexico. Uh, ra- just a few uh, months ago, uh, the main uh, government official for the security um, um, 
operation in Mexico, the 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 the, the national not the national but actually the, the federal security um, uh, minister of the government of Felipe Calderon was found uh, was convicted uh, in 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 federal court here in New York, and this man um, uh, who uh, who led the drug war in in the 2000s from 2006 and 2000 to 2012 was uh, not only a known um, uh, corrupt figure in those years in Mexico, but actually was documented that he had links with um, very shady uh, people all across the nation. And at the same time, of course, he uh, received the backing, uh, the support, the explicit support of agencies like the DEA, the State Department, um, and the federal government. And they were, they were he was uh, Washington's man in Mexico until he didn't, he, he was no longer needed. And now, of course, um, the US system is happy to prosecute uh, after of course, he uh, conducted one of the most violent um, homicidal uh, strategy, strategies uh, of militarization in Mexico with the full uh, support and backing of the U.S. So once again, what is extraordinary is that the U.S. Uh, encourages, promotes, defends, supports uh, corrupt government officials, uh, turns a blind eye when they're committing atrocities, when they're committing murder um, uh, openly in, in countries like Mexico, and then years later have no problem with prosecuting and pretending to uh, abide by the law and to and to bring some some form of uh, restorative justice to our country when uh, in fact the idea of the drug war was to begin with the problem. Yeah, it's such a Philip K. Dick uh, world, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so so let's get back to uh, Kiki Camarena and, and explain what happened there and, and what we know now about um, his murder. It, it is very important for me to, to, to do this historical um, uh, backtrack uh, of, of the drug war because when we, when we look at the long history of it, what we see, uh, this is like uh, what, what William Faulkner used to say about the past, the past is not past, it's not even, it's not even gone, right? It's, it's still with us. Right, um, and and Kiki Camarena is is a, um, uh, an extraordinary example about that. Uh, so he was a DEA agent uh, stationed in the city of Guadalajara in the early 1980s, and um, he's a, he was um, a Mexican American agent uh, who spoke Spanish, who, who was very familiar with the country, and and who used I, uh, his his knowledge of, of, of Mexico to help in the in the anti drug effort. Um, and, and he joined um, um, the DEA and became uh, one of the agents uh, in the city of Guadalajara, which is in central Mexico. And, and he started investigating uh, what is now called uh, the Guadalajara cartel, which was then led by uh, three major notorious traffickers, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, Rafael Caro Quintero, and Ernesto Fonseca uh, Carrillo. Um, all three, uh, by the way, in prison now. And, and what is very interesting about that, that era is that, um, um, as I mentioned before, these traffickers not only uh, had uh, the, ex the explicit support of uh, the Mexican government, but were in fact, you know, uh, uh, part of the system. Uh, they were very beneficial in many ways to, to clandestine operations and, and they were uh, protected by uh, police and, and military rackets. Now, Camarena started um, investigating uh, these organizations and and and, not, and when he uh, started getting close to uh, the source of money that that they were that they were producing uh, throughout Mexico uh, and abroad, two different um, uh, narratives opened up. You have the official narrative uh, that talks about what happened, and and then a, a contrary uh, a counter narrative that that started uh, circulating sometime in the 2000s, uh, uh, 2010s, 2013, I believe. So uh, I'll go. I'll refer first to the official narrative and then to the second one. In the official narrative, Camarena um, investigated, um, uh, especially uh, trafficker Rafael Caro Quintero, and his activity. Uh, his investigation led to um, the, uh, in the official narrative, to the um, the uncovering of this vast land of marijuana crops in the state of Chihuahua, and known as the El Rancho, um, uh, El Buffalo, right, the Buffalo Ranch, right, and and this place was a massive uh, land with marijuana crops that was uh, taken down by the the the, the Mexican military and federal uh, police. 
sometime in, in the early 1980s. Uh, I believe it, this is 1983, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe, I think it's 83. And, um, and in the official narrative, the traffickers, out of uh, revenge, decided to kidnap uh, Camarena, torture him, and ultimately assassinate him. Um, and, and because of this, uh, of course, horrible crime, uh, there was a major um, um, a diplomatic uh, uh, binational scandal um, that uh, that led to uh, the the entire shutdown of the federal police in Mexico, uh, the special police in Mexico, the, what is called what was called then the the director, the federal directorate, uh, the federal security directorate, uh, which was something equivalent to the FBI, um, um, a federal uh, police that uh, that whose main focus was to um, uh, to tackle organized crime in in, in places like uh, Guadalajara, especially trying to uh, rein in uh, the drug trade uh, in the drug underworld. Uh, so what is really interesting then is that the, the traffickers were blamed for this crime and and major changes happened throughout Mexico to uh, adapt to a new era of, of anti-drug policy. Now in 2013, what is uh, extraordinary is that uh, two former DEA agents, one of them who actually led the, uh, the internal investigation to, un to clarify the murder of Camarena, denounced uh, 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 CIA agents and FBI and, and DEA agents as not only uh, uh, complicit in complicity with the crime, but actually of having produced the crime. And a very different narrative emerged. Uh, what they claim uh, is that Camarena understood that um, the Mexican government and uh, the CIA were using drug traffickers, uh, uh, especially the ones in Guadalajara, to fund uh, the Contra effort in Nicaragua. Uh, as you know, uh, back in the in the 1980s, uh, the U.S. Congress passed uh, uh, an amendment to uh, to prohibit uh, the direct funding of uh, Contra activity. And so uh, what these agents claim is that um, the CIA sought uh, Mexican government support using drug money to bring weapons and even training uh, of Contra uh, um, soldiers in, uh, in properties uh, that uh, belong to traffickers in Mexico. One of them supposedly located in the, in the state of Veracruz. Um, and, and there are different sources to this. It's not just that those two DEA agents that have claimed uh, this. Um, and, and what is very important to understand here is that um, um, by in, in their own investigation, the DEA agent that, that came forward and accused uh, the CIA and the DEA as being complicit uh, ha is based his investigation in, in direct testimony of people who were there present when they were torturing uh, Agent Camarena. They claim uh, that the person uh, conducting the torture was nothing, no, nobody else but uh, uh, a DEA, uh, a CIA agent. And, 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 and condecorated um, a soldier. Um, and so what is very interesting then is to, uh, to see the, these two narratives emerging, right, and, 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 and basically disputing what went on in the 1980s. Of course, the official um, uh, narrative has prevailed, and it has prevailed in part because it has become common knowledge that traffickers are supposedly very powerful and capable of not only challenging the Mexican government, but in fact controlling it. And it has been advanced and, and repeated uh, endlessly in, in so many different cultural products, most, most notoriously in the Netflix series Narcos, right, where, uh, where they literally tell the, the DEA tale. Right, the official DEA's uh, uh, narrative, which is the traffickers enraged and uh, by and, and wanting revenge decided uh, to take on uh, matters in their own hand and, and kidnapping and, and, and torturing and ultimately killing Agent Camarena. Um, but we know now, of course, uh, that um, that at least there's a very serious counter-accusation to this. And, and on the other hand, what we also know is that this narrative continues to be fed by the very same people who, uh, who started um, uh, constructing this official narrative, right? The same DEA agents and, and government officials back in the 1980s still advise uh, in many of the cultural products that are out there peddling this, this story, right? Uh, this is uh, true, for example, for agent uh, James Kirkendall, who, who is um, one of the um, uh, main consultants for uh, advisors for um, the series, uh, the, the narco series in Netflix, right? He's so... Um, close to the production of the series that, uh, and, and, and anybody with a computer can, can verify this, he even offers spoilers 
you know, to uh, to what uh, the series is going to do in, in, in the following seasons, right? So what is extraordinary then is to see how in line um, the official narrative and most cultural products about the drug war are uh, are are produced right and and how and how closely uh, maintained is this official perspective on the drug war yeah so um we have only about 13 minutes left and i absolutely want to get to um what's new to me in your book um which we'll get to in a minute uh, and i think it's very important but um y- y- you assert that um, certainly throughout some of the time or maybe all of the time um, the drug lords so-called um, well we're really working under the ages of um, of politicians in Mexico and I wonder if um, we can say the same about the United States are there um, People here that use that that don't just use the war on drugs and the notion of cartels and so on um, to keep everybody afraid and uh, uh, you know for their political means, but also are actually involved in in um, drug trafficking to some degree. And you know, I I don't know if uh, there's any information you know and. It feels like a very dangerous thing to ask, let alone answer. But um, anyway, I asked it. <laughs> well, it's it's difficult, of course, to 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 speculate about um, the drug uh, world in in the U.S. But we can say a few things that are that I think are uh, very important, right? First and foremost, that the drug trade continues to happen very much. Uh, in, in, in broad daylight in, in the U.S., right? Uh, now, of course, that uh, we are moving, uh, and, I, and I rightly so, and I support this, to the decriminalization of uh, uh, drugs like, like, like cannabis, for example, uh, it has become more and more tolerated and accepted in, in, in major cities all across the U.S., right? And so what is very extraordinary is to, is to see that and to understand that when countries like Mexico and Colombia are leading this very violent and bloody drug war, the drug market in the U.S. It is pretty stable, uh, and prices uh, for people who consume drugs will tell you do not really change. Uh, so, uh, so we one needs to question then why is it uh, that we still think of a drug war that has very little effect in in drug consumption, that that has very little effect in how people access illegal drugs and 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 the massive um emergencies that other uh, uh drugs have caused in the country especially of course like the question of synthetics right uh, uh opioids like fentanyl right how is it that uh that a drug like fentanyl continues to enter uh the the clandestine markets in the u.s when we are putting this uh multi-billion dollar effort in countries like mexico in the u.s um and so for me the question is not really about the drug trade altogether but this massive uh, business opportunity that is the drug war, right? Uh, uh, journalist Todd Miller, uh, who is uh, uh, one of the uh, most uh, serious, credible experts on, on this topic, has uh, uh, done uh, very important uh, journalistic uh, coverage explaining how uh, just in between the Obama and the Biden administration, you have billions and billions of dollars um, to bring more security to the border, to bring, you know, all kinds of technology, robo-dogs and, and drones, etc., cetera, uh, in, in a massive effort that ha- that renders very little uh, results, right? And so uh, w- what I think needs to happen then is not just uh, how to uh, criticize the drug war altogether, but how to stop this uh, paranoid uh, and, and very lucrative policy of national security, right? Because and, and, and this is, I guess, the main uh, the main final outcome that I make in my book, right? Because it continues to bring to the front uh, to uh, other enemies of, of national security, um, um, the national security paradigm, right? So the drug trade happens to be the current one. But we keep moving into different uh, uh, objects of this violent uh, uh, mentality, right? And namely now, for example, the uh, the question of undocumented migration, right? How is it that 
just people moving across borders now justifies this massive deployment of military uh, soldiers and all across Mexico and the southern and the northern borders and how, you know, it turns migration and the question of uh, asylum into a national security uh, emergency, right? Yeah. And, and so this is this is something that I think uh, we need to keep inside and, and move away from criminalizing the drug trade, right? Because uh, as we know now from um, the experience of countries that have uh, ended the prohibition, especially in the case of Portugal, for example, the drugs themselves don't bring violence, right? Drug users are not inherently violent. This is, of course, the very conservative and very dangerous idea of the prohibition that the U.S. has pushed uh, throughout decades. Yeah. So so everything that you've said, it really brings me to that point that um, is is new to me, though. Obviously, it's not new because you quote several um, uh, researchers and journalists who talk about that. But um, the fact that this war on drugs has been used to support uh, capitalist and neoliberal policies of um, land grabs and um, getting um, to natural resources that um, were not available previously. And I want you to please talk about sure. that because that is so important. And I don't think very, f- I think very few people know about that. Yeah, this this is this is perhaps one of the key also uh, arguments of my book, uh, and that I based uh, uh, directly from the work of pioneer journalists uh, in Mexico and abroad. And I'm thinking here in particular the wonderful Canadian journalist Don Paley, or Italian correspondent Federico Mastro Giovanni, or in Mexico the investigative reporter Ignacio Alvarado, who uh, I have the fortune uh, to know uh, when I was myself a reporter in the border in uh, covering for El Diario de Juarez. And so what is extraordinary is that they have demonstrated how there is a, a, a correlation, a direct correlation between the militarization and the, uh, and the extractive industry all across Mexico. Right. So when you when this so-called war on drugs began and the the massive deployment of soldiers started, uh, you could uh, very quickly in 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 a, in a matter of few years um, bring together the map of the uh, of the deployments, the military deployments, and the map of natural resources, and they mostly coincide. Right. You have, for example, um, the deployment of thousands of soldiers in the state of uh, Tamaulipas, where we have one of the world's largest gas reservoirs. Um, that, of course, uh, became um, uh, uh, an object of, of, um, of exploration. And, and later in the years of the presidency of Enrique Peña Nieto, um, major projects began to lay out pipelines and to begin the extraction of natural gas. Now, what is extraordinary is that this all happened throughout uh, the years of the, of the crudest and, and most violent um, drug uh, wars that were uh, uh, narrated by you know, agencies like the DA or, or, the, or the Mexican military. And so one has to wonder, how is it possible that precisely in the middle of the most, the bloodiest uh, uh, drug war in Mexico, uh, engineers from BP, Chevron, Sempra Energy, all these transnational companies were able to successfully uh, retrieve shale gas and bring it all across uh, with new pipeline, um, uh, the U.S., Right. And, and, and so what is uh, very important then is to look at the journalism done by, by these three uh, reporters and, and, and others that, uh, that I quote in my, in my book uh, to show how the militarization allowed for uh, the displacement, uh, the massive internal displacement of entire communities uh, sitting upon um, rich uh, gas, uh, gas rich lands. Right. And, and these, of course, were communal lands that could not be bought, that could not be uh, opened for exploration. And and so we needed violence in many ways, not just to administer um, a, a new idea of, um, of, of extraction, but actually to appropriate land, right? To appropriate in, um, uh, communal lands and to displace people and, and ultimately also to, to neutralize any form of communal resistance, right? Um, the drug war has been used as the excuse for the, the, the systematic killing of activists, eco-activists, um, uh, indigenous communities trying to uh, counter the land dispossession. And, and, and the drug war narrative has been effectively used 
to cover uh, the killing of communal leaders all across uh, Mexico and in other places in Central America as well, of course. Um, so there's a there's a, a direct correlation uh, between the drug war and and the extractive industry. This is what my my friend Don Paley calls drug war capitalism, which, by the way, is the title of her book, and I recommend. Uh, Absolutely, I, I'm amazed. I never heard of her, but um, yes, I'm I'm on it. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so is that why Amlo um, has declared that he won't uh, participate in the war on the cartels anymore and. Um, has refused the Merida initiatives. Is, is he better than previous um, presidents in that sense? And we have like two and a half minutes. <laughs> well, yes and no. The President, President Lopez Obrador did begin uh, with a very different understanding of the drug war. He criticized the presence of the military and he rightly so uh, understood that the drug war was used uh, as an instrument of, uh, of violence uh, that had very lethal consequences for uh, the most vulnerable people in the country, right? The, the, the average victim of the militarization is usually young, poor, brown men who live in the outskirts of cities, right? Not powerful traffickers that uh, that are the mythical imagination tends to uh, present. Now, he, he rightly so uh, also uh, criticized the extractive industry that flourished under uh, the era of the drug war. And, and by bringing these two topics together, I think he, he allowed us to see a new understanding of the, 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 the disastrous consequences of, of the national security policy pushed in the US uh, in, in, in countries like Mexico, right? So, so by bringing these two topics together, the drug trade and energy, uh, we could see how one complemented the other. And, and yes, President Lopez Obrador tried to refuse um, the, the expansion of the military effort uh, for the drug trade, uh, for the drug war. But uh, I think, unfortunately, ended up caving to uh, the pressure uh, of both our domestic military and the U.S. And unfortunately, what we see now is the, the, continue, the continuation of the drug war. We see drug operations happening again. We see the clear participation of armed forces in, in, in crimes against humanity and in, in, in massive crimes and in massacres. And we see not only the expansion of drug war policy altogether, but even the inclusion of these other so-called threats, right? Migration, for example, um, as uh, seen as a problem and not as a, as a tragedy uh, as it should. And, and so, um, unfortunately, I think this presidency has embraced uh, as well, uh, the, the presence of the military for, for this national security paradigm, and we see no end in sight uh, for the drug war. You become a president, you have to drink the poison chalice yes. and uh, become so. one of them kind of thing. Well, um, Oswaldo Zavala, I am so uh, grateful for your book and for you joining us today. I think it's so important. And... Um, you know, a, a, um, t- to get this um, little bit of reality into our um, heads and, you know, maybe um, that can spread. So thank you so very much, Osvaldo Zavala, Professor of Latin American Literature and Culture at the College of Staten Island Department of World Languages and Literatures and the Graduate Center PhD program in Latin American, Iberian and Latino Cultures at City University of New York, CUNY. Uh, you know we have a very good department here, LASIS, the Latin American, Caribbean and Iberian Studies, and they bring speakers, so maybe we can uh, get them to bring you too. That would be That would be lovely. I'm happy yeah. to be there, of course. <laughs> Thank yeah. you so much for the invitation. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much, Oswaldo. Thank you, Summer and Jade and Patty. I'm STD Noor. Um, we'll be talking again next week. Bye-bye.